Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries, friends. My name is Nate. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic and sober coach. My addiction has shaped the person I am today and given me the ability and voice to help others, and I simply wouldn't be here without it. Recovery is possible. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we share powerful stories of recovery told by those who live them. Head on over to the sobrietydiaries.com where you can apply to be a guest on the show and join our insiders list for exclusive content, early release episodes, and much more. Also, please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may still be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Also, before we jump into things today, I wanted to take a minute to thank Exact Nature for sponsoring today's show. Founded by a father and son in addiction recovery, Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specifically formulated to help you face the challenges of recovery, be it anxiety, cravings, or even improving sleep. I absolutely love the Serenity Oil, and Exact Nature has even helped me kick the nicotine habit, which I am happy to say, now I am over two months nicotine-free. As a listener of the Sobriety Diaries, use the code TSD20 at exactnature.com for 20% off of your order. Again, use the code TSD20 at checkout. Happy Sober Day, friends. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode and spending part of your day with me here on the Sobriety Diaries. Well, friends, the time has come. Today, I will be sharing more about my journey and path to recovery and some of the deeper issues and root causes of my addiction. I ask all my guests to be open and raw and truthful when I interview them. So turnabout is fair play. Uh, The time has come. So I will be sharing some of my deepest vulnerabilities today. And I want to jump right into it. So let's open the diary on me. So my friends, with all of that being said, the only person that I would turn my microphone over to is back from our first conversation. We said that uh, we would have part two and perhaps part three, and he is here today, my new friend, TJ Woodward. Hi, TJ. 
Hi, Nate. I'm so grateful to be here. And I really loved our first conversation and also love the willingness to sit with it, explore it, and to come back and talk about where we're at since then. Yeah. And I think it's the perfect sort of pickup and continuation to share my story like I have not done yet on the podcast. And, you know, I think I ask my guests to be as open and raw and truthful as possible. So here we are. Wow. Well, I think a great opening might be, and I love that you're willing to do this, Nate, because I do think uh, us being willing to share our stories really does help others, right? To be an inspiration to people, not in a, in a way of like, we have answers for you, but we have shared experience, the shared human experience. So I'm grateful for you. And I'm really grateful for this conversation. And I would like to start with how has, what has been emerging for you? How have you been reflecting uh, since our last conversation and everything that came up as a result of that conversation? A lot came up and, you know, I have been in this sort of reflective state since our last discussion. It's been about, I guess, a month and a half, maybe two months. You know, I usually kick my story off by saying, like, I, I, I didn't experience any trauma in my childhood and there's no, you know, traumatic events to speak of. And, you know, I grew up in a, in a normal household and that's kind of that. And then I kind of gloss over things and move into my adolescence and, and when I started drinking. And since our conversation and since listening to your story and relating to really so much of what you said and how you uh, sort of drove me to think a little deeper and you know, I, I really have been reflecting on the earlier times in my life and why the shame developed and why the shame existed for so long. Uh, and I really wanted to, to dig, to dig deeper and, and understand when it started and why it sort of happened. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, there is trauma, there was trauma, and it may not be trauma in the sense that we typically think of or these these huge events. But they I, I interviewed Lisa Lampanelli not long ago and she used the phrase trauma with a not trauma with a capital T, but trauma with a lowercase T. And and she had these like sprinkled out through her life. And I related to that as well. And I think that they were these little little traumas with with a lowercase T that happened throughout my childhood that that have stuck with me today. To, until today, and that certainly influenced the way that I acted and the way that I presented myself to the world. Yeah, thank you for that, because I do think uh, part of the nature of the conversation we've been having in our culture over the last decade or so, in the emergence of this awareness that trauma is one of the roots of many things happening in our life, um, including physical disease and addiction, and we could the list could go on. I think there's a tendency, uh, the mind is always comparing, right? Like, I'm going to compare my life to your life. And that is what the mind does. It has that function. It sorts, it separates, it classifies, it identifies. When it comes to trauma, that's not really going to help because what could be 
extremely traumatic for one person would be completely insignificant for another. Now, obviously there are some obvious traumas like someone who's sexually abused or beaten or uh, you know that lost a parent. Those are obvious traumas. And so when we have this framework of big T, little T trauma, that's where I think that comes from. And for me, I like to say that and what I think is even more important is what was this experience like for you and what were the core decisions you made about yourself? And I think I may have told my story about not being able to tie my shoes on our last episode. Yes, yes. That's, that's so insignificant for mm-hmm. some people. But for me, that was a pivotal moment because at a very deep level, I decided I was stupid. And how easy would it be for me to say or someone else say, well, that's not trauma, right? So what we want to look at is what were the conditions of our life and what was created and what did I decide about myself in the world? Because most of the time it's not conscious. In other words, it's less about what happened, but more about what I experienced when that happened. Very true. And I think one of the things that I have been focused on and that I recalled really through this reflection on myself is I got in my buddy doll. And if you're a child of the 80s and 90s, it was not a Barbie doll or not a a baby doll, but it was like the kid, the little boy's version of, it looked like Chucky actually from the movie, uh, the Chucky series movies. But so my sister and I would, would stay at my grandparents' house every so often. And I had gotten to my buddy for Christmas. And it was the first time that we were staying at their house since I had this new doll. And I was like inseparable from it. And we got to my grandparents house and my grandfather said, you know, I will not have a grandson in this house with with a doll or no grandson of mine will ever play with a doll. Um you know, that's for girls and he will not stay in this house. Mm-hmm. And I immediately started crying and wouldn't give up my doll. And he stood firm and we were not allowed to stay in their house that night. So my parents canceled their plans. We went home and it was, you know, a canceled evening for them, a crying fit for me and, you know, something that, of course, my my mom still remembers. I had sort of on and off recollection of it until I had I've had two therapy sessions since you and I talked, and that came up. And I think that 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 is certainly a traumatic event. I mean, I was probably six at the time. So, needless to say, I rarely, if I think ever spoke to my grandfather again, just because there was this, this fear, really, that it would, that there would be another eruption or that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough in some way. So, you know, I think uh, we had maybe a few other conversations, surface level conversations for the rest of his life and until he passed when I was a teenager. Wow. So let's, if you're willing, let's explore that a little bit because I do, I do find um, when I work with people and whenever I hear someone say, I don't have trauma, we're always going to want to explore the events in our lives that 
are significant, right? Because I think the reason that sometimes the word trauma doesn't work for people is we naturally uh, want to go into like whose fault was it or who was to blame, right? Yeah, but instead, yeah. what we want to explore, imagine, imagine you at six years old, right? Um, we at six years old don't even have the cognitive ability to understand something like wow, maybe my grandfather has some really deep programs around, you know, male and female. And that kind of reaction is some kind of wound he's trying to work through. Like we don't have that. Right. right, right so right. what was the experience of that for you? And are you in touch with not so much what your thoughts are or were about it, but what that felt like for you at six years old? You know, truly, I don't, I don't think so. No, that would be, I think, what I would invite is the deeper work to see if you can carve out a, a, a place and a space for you to become aware of what the six-year-old might've been feeling at the time, right? Because life is actually energy. Uh, and most of us, many of us, I'll say many of us have been, had that kind of taught out of us, but it's actually really instinctual. Um, an infant, for example, really takes on the energy around them because, um, we don't even have brains that are developed yet, right? So we're purely aware of the energy. That's instinctual for animals. You know, for example, animals run to higher ground during a tsunami instinctually, right? right. So we really are um, energetic beings that are feeling what's around us. So it's not even necessarily so much what he said, but more how that felt for you. And then getting in touch with what you what you buried within yourself, or my favorite word, concretized, what belief what idea, what frequency developed because of that moment. Uh, a lot of time, even um, cognitive therapy, we would want to look at the thoughts you have about it, um, what that created in your life, how do you look at the narrative that was created. But the deeper work for me is actually to carve out a space, as I said, where you can get in touch with what that felt like and then start to care for that part of yourself because we don't really change it cognitively because you didn't even have a cognitive understanding of what was happening. You cried, so you, there was something there, right? There was something that felt a particular way. And what we wanna do is create a space for us to start to let the six-year-old feel that and let your six-year-old know that it's okay to feel, hmm. right? Because that might've been a secondary message, right? And what are you noticing in this moment would be my question for you. Not so much what you're thinking, but what are you noticing? I am trying to sort of put myself back in that place to, to understand or feel, you know, feel those feelings to, to see if, if other than crying, you know, what my other physical reactions, what, what was happening around me? What were the reactions of other people? You know, I think trying to understand the bigger picture. I know from just family stories, like my grandfather, he had these programs and these thoughts and beliefs that were deep rooted and, and, you know, it's hard to blame him. You know, I, I, I guess I don't hold anything still against him or or his beliefs or the way that he was brought up it certainly um, influenced uh, a lot in my young life 
Yeah. And it's a very interesting, nuanced way to work with this because it's not about blame. We can have compassion for him, right? That he had this deep program. And at the same time, we can also work with what the experience was like, right? Because if we move out of the frequency of blame, because there's some quality to that, that is like, if he's to blame, then it's going to lessen the impact on me. But that's not really true. Yeah. Right. And then there's on the flip side, I think it's also really common for us to go into, well, he was doing the best he could. It's not really his fault. I have compassion for him. And then we can dismiss the impact of it. So we want to hold it in in both ways, but we really want to um, be able to get in touch with, and, you know, we could do this right now, Nate, if you want, or we could, this is something that we could work with later but it yeah. really is getting in touch with what that experience was like. And we know, even if we don't have conscious memory, what we know about trauma is it gets locked in the body, not locked in our mind. The mind plays a role, but it generally gets locked in our body. That's why when people do, for example, deep tissue massage, they might find themselves starting to cry. Mm. And then not even a conscious awareness of what that was about. Uh, it is in the body. Uh, it, the body keeps the score as we hear with trauma. So it's there somewhere. And then we would want to get in touch with what's happening. It's not so much about having a very clear memory as it is holding a space for us to have the experience of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to, to do, to do whatever. So why don't we just take a moment uh, this is a very brief process that is an inner child process or uh, inner child healing process. So what I'm going to invite you to do then is to gently close your eyes. And just become aware of your breath for a moment, really feeling the inhale and the exhale. And just notice if you have any thoughts about what's happening and to the best of your ability. Allow those thoughts to gently come and go. No need to change the thoughts, but simply notice them. Noticing what emotion is present or what emotions are present. Just allowing yourself to feel. And the invitation now is to shift your focus even more deeply inward, finding that place within yourself that is calm, what we're going to be doing, Nate, for the first for the next few minutes is I'll be guiding you through a little meditative process and asking you to be present with it and maybe answer a few questions out loud if that's okay for you. And start by simply taking a few moments in the silence. I want you in this moment to Imagine being six years old and being at your grandfather's place. See if you can really embody your six-year-old at this moment. Just see what's there. See if you can look around and notice what your environment looked like. And now imagining this incident happened with him. And see if you can get in touch with any feeling that is present. Just notice it. And what we're going to do now is I'm going to invite your adult self to talk to your six-year-old self for just a few minutes, if that's okay. 
Nate, how does that make you feel? Just embodying your younger self. Answer that question and again out loud. What are you feeling in this moment? Fear. So now you're adult, Nate, saying to your child, it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be afraid. It's safe for you to feel fear. It's safe for you to feel fear. And I am here for you. And I'm here for you. Again, embodying your six-year-old self. Just noticing now, what are you feeling? Just noticing if anything changed, if it didn't, it's all perfect. Now I want you to imagine your adult self sitting down with your six-year-old. Maybe you're holding him or hugging him or sitting next to him, playing with him, whatever feels right in this moment. Just feeling that connection with your six-year-old. Now asking your six-year-old permission to come back to this current memory Letting your six-year-old know that you're learning how to take care of him. That you're not leaving him, but you're simply bringing your awareness back to current time. In your own words, have that conversation with your six-year-old. I'm understanding how to care for you, Nate, and... I love you and am not leaving you, but understanding you better. Learning how to take care of you. And learning to take care of you. Be present for you. And be present for you. And honor you. And honor you. And whenever it feels right for you, you can just. And so before we jump into conversation, just taking a moment, letting yourself reacclimate with this present moment. What was that experience like for you? It was very vivid. And yeah, it was powerful. Like I could smell my grandfather's chewing tobacco. <laughs> when I was coming out of it, like I began to feel this sorrow for my mom and her siblings, um, too, for for a lifetime of that, of what I only got a glimpse of in that one moment um, of my life. And that's the interesting part, right? Even though we might uh, think we don't have a very clear memory when we carve out the space, even if it's not accurate, right? I think sometimes our mind is like, oh, is this the way it really happened? It's really less important and more important that it's in there, right? This memory, like the fact that you could even have the, the sensation of smell, right? That these memories are really alive within us. And if you notice the three questions I ask, right, or I offer them the three statements which is it's starting with it's okay to feel 
most of us didn't get that, right? We don't, we are not usually told it's okay to feel whatever we're feeling. And that's innate. Little kids naturally emote and then go back to the natural state, which is joy. What are you noticing right now? It's more of that sort of sorrow for the rest of my family. I, and, and this is typical of me to to be empathetic to other people's situation and just bury my own. Thinking of all my aunts and uncles and, and my mom right now. Yeah. So just noticing that and seeing if we can simply stay present with it. And just, I notice that's, maybe we would call that a strategy, right? I notice... Mm-hmm. My strategy is to feel the sorrow, that's the word you use, the sorrow for others and maybe bury my own. And then just be curious about that, right? We don't need to do anything with that. We don't need to force you to do something different, you know? And then one one thing I like to invite myself to look at then is like, is that particular strategy something I use in the world, right? Focusing on the sadness or the sorrow of others or the needs of others rather than my own. Is that something that shows up for you, Nate? Yes. (laughs) And then if we can look at it without judgment, there's a light and a shadow to everything. And so just to give you a little information about why we do this process the way we do, uh, it might be really obvious, but I'll just speak to it. We have this little child within us, or we might call it a wound, and that needs some attention right? There's some attention that's needed. And we reparent, we call it reparenting or self-parenting because we're actually able to go back into the past and give our younger self what we needed at the time, but most of us didn't get, right? It's okay to feel this way. You're safe now, and I'm here for you. And sometimes that when I do this process, the six-year-old, the eight-year-old will say, you're not here for me. You haven't been here for me, right? So they they might get angry. Mm. And so then we go into, it's okay for you to be angry. It's safe to be angry. And I'm here for you, right? So there's not a, there's not a specific outcome we're looking for in terms of what emerges in the process, but it's learning how to, and really practicing being present and just allowing ourselves to feel. And I think we talked about this in our last episode. It's, you know, so many of us try to figure out why we're feeling what we're feeling. And instead, what we want to do is simply allow ourselves to feel it and allow the emotion to move through so that we can heal some of this and then learn how to be more present without carrying this unconsciously into our present moment experience. And so to normalize that and to not go into, I shouldn't be doing this, but to go into, oh, what does it create when I have this thing that's unhealed and how is it showing up in the present moment? So again, we're not like, how do I get rid of this pattern or how do I not carry it in? It's how do I start to care for that part of myself and heal it? And in a, in a very profound and somewhat esoteric way, we can actually then change the past right? Because we, it's not so much what happened. It's what we decided about what happened. Mm. And if I can go back and start to heal the decisions I made about myself, I start to change the present and the future. And, you know, that might sound a little out there for some people, but the path, the only past that really exists is the past in our minds, our stories and our beliefs and our idea about what happened based on what we uncovered just now and what we explored because the last thing that your six-year-old said is, I felt shame, I feel shameful, right? Yeah. 
And so you have acknowledged that shame has been a theme in your life. So you could talk about it through the lens of how that contributed to your addiction or how it shows up for you in your life now. I didn't have a example or a picture of what gay life looked like. And I started to realize, you know, things about myself as I developed and, and started to have sexual feelings, you know, like I always felt different, but I didn't quite know what it was. And I realized I was gay. But again, there was no sort of positive, at least picture of of gay life. um, When, when I was sort of realizing this. So uh, I remember watching, I think, Phil Donahue at the time. And, you know, it was, I think, probably the first exposure that I had to, to any gay couple or gay man on television was like Sally, Jesse, Raphael, and Phil Donahue. And I think this in particular day was, was D- Phil Donahue. And there was a gay couple. And I remember my dad saying, I wonder which one is the woman and which one is the man in the relationship. And I mean, I remember this like it was yesterday. So, you know, that built upon that shame and that, you know, these, these little things that happened made me just question things more and retreat deeper and deeper uh, within myself. And, you know, this was, as I was realizing such an important, huge part about myself, I was also realizing at the same time, like, I don't know that I will ever share this with anyone because of the reactions that I see from other people in regards to gay men in general or the queer culture in general. So, you know, I I was developing and realizing this part of myself and at the same time preparing myself to never tell anyone. Wow. And as you're, as you're saying that, as you hear yourself saying that, what do you think the impact of that has been uh, in your relationships and your sense of well-being? I'm just curious how you, what, what, from, from these moments on, what was the trajectory of that within, in relationship to shame? Well, I started drinking at an early age. I came out to the first, to, to my friend in college and So I went through adolescence, high school, leaving for college, and halfway through my freshman year of college before I came out to to anyone. And in the first person, and probably the first 10 people that I came out to, I was was completely wasted when I did it. Alcohol was hand-in-hand with this for a long time. Yeah, because we're looking at alcohol and not as the problem or addiction as the problem, but as the solution. And, you know, as we explored before, we call it a brilliant strategy because it really is brilliant at the time. And then we get sober, right? And and once you got sober, my question for you is once you got sober, then, you, you know, you took away the alcohol and it's kind of like what was left. And as, as it relates to the conversation of shame, what was it like for you? Because it is true, right? That that whatever addiction we're practicing, if we are, it's really trying to manage something. It's trying to bring us relief. And 
it yeah. obviously works on some level because we keep doing it. And then as you said, then it stops working and we get sober. We're not taking away the problem as many people think. We're actually taking away the solution. And then we're left with the shame or the you know unresolved trauma or whatever the underlying issues are. So I'm curious for you, um, maybe we could start with what was it like in the beginning of your recovery with that and then maybe move into... What has that process been like for you in terms of healing the shame? You know, I have come to realize recently that I don't know that I really have healed. And you uh, and you mentioned briefly bef before about uh, how that uh, manifested itself in my relationships. And as a, a gay man who has... Uh, approaching 40 years old, I've been in two relationships and both were less than one year. And I truly, you know, think that I have made these strides in my life, but that is not one of them. I don't think that I am fully healed and or free of shame regarding my sexuality. Yeah, thank you for your transparency with that. And you know, one of the things for me, and I, I think this might be common with gay men, um, and I know that it's common with shame, but I compartmentalize sex and love. So I, you know, throughout my life, I would have sex with people or I'd fall in love with people, but I didn't marry those two, so to speak, until I was in my late 30s. I was 37 when I had my first sexually intimate relationship with someone I was in love with. And it was terrifying for me because it brought all the shame up. It brought all the like, please love me. Everything yeah. was, please don't leave me. And then I became kind of obsessed with holding on to him, which of course ended the relationship. Right. <laughs> right. right. So which is why I, both of them ended. Yes. Right. And so there are, there are a couple of conversations, right? We could spend time talking about the relationships, but I'd rather talk about like what's, the, the, because you said I haven't really healed it. And in some way, you know, there's no finish line. We're always working with it. I had this idea that I was supposed to completely resolve my trauma and completely eradicate my shame before I could do whatever it was. But I've come to understand we're always in that process. And I, I, I'll say it this way. I've healed more of it than I ever had in my life prior to this moment. Uh, and so, so the inner work is what I'd really love to explore. And what do you think that is for you at this point in terms of the, this conversation of relationships and what you truly desire? I want to be really careful when we have a conversation because I, the last thing we want to do is add shame to anyone's sexual behavior because it's an individual choice. And the truth is our country, you know, in the United States where, you know, Puritans really formed this country, right? And so I think sex itself can have a lot of shame to it. Uh, for me, I had so much shame about myself that when I would actually have sex in my early life, in my early 20s, I would immediately feel shame after having sex. Just be, by, just being a sexual mm. being mm. carried shame, right? And, you know, the term out of the closet actually came from Britain from having sex outside of the bathroom, outside of the water closet. That's where the term came from, if anyone doesn't know that. I didn't. So yeah, so there's a long history <laughs> yeah. of, as gay men um, having secrecy around sex. And, you know, 
Brene Brown is one of the people who is talking a lot about shame. And I love when she talks about the three components that allow shame to thrive. She says to thrive in the Petri dish, and that is secrecy, silence, and judgment, right? And so gay men, traditionally, sex was a secret, right? And we were not talking about it. So it was secret, it was silent, and then there was judgment. Um, There was judgment from society first, but then our subculture, if you will, I think there's a lot of shame that gets attached to sex, even though we say we're more liberated now, which obviously is true. I would have never imagined being born in Indiana in 1965, how far we've come and the shame is still part of it. So for me, I want to be really careful not to say there's anything right or wrong about someone having sex and a lot of sex, if that's what they want. Right. The the fundamental question is, what do I truly desire? Because for some people, they don't desire marrying sex and love. And that's perfectly okay. We want to look at what do I really want? You know, and for me, what happened in in my late 30s was I knew I wanted some kind of intimate connection, but I hadn't done it yet. And it was so terrifying for me. And so there was a period of time when I thought, well, I probably need to stop hooking up so much if I really want a partner. But really the work was internal because the actual work for me wasn't so much about who I was or wasn't having sex with. It was being really present with what emerged as I blended those. Um, I remember just having this huge shame response, this huge fear, like, oh my gosh, he'll leave me now. The more I do something, the more I want to do it. Right. So the more I'm authentic and open and vulnerable and transparent, the more that I feel that. And then, oh, wow, I want more of that. Yeah. And then it starts showing up in more and more of my relationships. So I, I, you know, I say all of that. And I also look at where I am in my life. And I, I have this overall happiness and this overall sense of accomplishment and like i'm doing pretty big career things now and and fun things and like living the dreams that i had five years ago so it is for me this weird dichotomy of being where i want to be but yet still having this void or this you know lack of a portion of my authentic self. Yeah, I love that. And, and you know, what I would invite or ask is this sort of paradox of what if everything is already perfect? What if I'm already whole and complete? And then what, what might change in the equation if I think I want to offer that to someone? It's funny. Like I said many times, you know, I'm just meant to like be by myself. I'm, I'm not meant to have a partner. I do so well on my own. I like said it so many times, a portion of that was just because I didn't have anybody, you know, but then uh, I don't know. I don't know. Curious, open and present. Yes. Yeah. It's in the presence of authenticity. Yeah. Time almost becomes something other than I experienced it before. Tell us quickly about, uh, conscious creation. Yeah, my new book, it's out, Conscious Creation, Five Steps to Embracing the Life of Your Dreams. Uh, I've given it an acronym movie, um, M-O-V-I-E. It's five steps to really getting in touch with what we truly desire and what is it that is our um, purpose here on planet Earth and how do we step more fully into it. 
I'm really excited. There's a conscious creation course that I'm giving away for free and the book and workbook will be out in the next couple of months. So I'm, I'm really grateful to share this because this process has been so life-changing for me, moving out of what I should be doing and into what do I truly desire to create. I know you're a busy man, so I, I thank you for um, taking time for this important conversation and um, always quick to reply to my text messages and uh, being so flexible and so supportive of everything. I truly appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Nate. And I love your platform and I love that you're bringing these important conversations into our culture and into the conversation about how we can be more present, be more open, heal what's unhealed from the past so that we can really actually step fully into the life that we truly desire. So thank you for this platform and this opportunity. Until next time, my friend. Indeed. Wow. A vulnerability that I am not used to showing, but I hope that listeners can relate. Thank you so much, TJ, for your time. Thank you for listening today and downloading today's episode. Hopefully you heard something you can relate to. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Head on over to the sobrietydiaries.com to join our insiders list and download today's episode. Also at youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, where we upload today's video podcast and on Instagram at the Sobriety Diaries pod. Check back soon for new episodes with new stories to tell. But until then, try your best not to drink and be good to yourselves. Bye, friends. <laughs>